0: Well, good morning. I want to add uh, to to Drew's greeting and say I'm very glad to see you. I'm Aubrey. I, like Drew, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, so the reading from Daniel, very weird. Um, If you're not accustomed to the part of the Bible called apocalyptic literature, then you might have felt for just a moment that you were back in your teenage years or for Zeke in his adult years reading comic books, and Phil, for that matter. Um, I thought that I was going to get to talk about that this Sunday, but I don't think I'm going to. So um, all that weird stuff, I think I'm going to have to wait until next Sunday to get there. We'll see. Um, If Ed starts looking at his watch, I'll have to cut it off early. But um, we'll see what happens. All right. On October the 10th, 2010, our church held its first worship service, And from the beginning, we've had a very clear sense of our identity, that we are a Christian church, and we're in this city on purpose. We're in this city for God's glory and for the good of this city. This has been the vision that has animated our church from the very beginning. In just a couple of weeks, our church is going to turn seven years old. And so for the last year and a half, uh, the leadership of our church has been thinking and praying and working hard on what's the next chapter. We, we feel so blessed what has happened in the last seven years. It's been wonderful. It's been remarkable. And, and the leadership has had this sense that we've in many ways hit the target we've been aiming at and that we need to kind of push pause And reflect and say, okay, now what is next for our church? What does it mean for us in the next season of life to be for the glory of God and for the good of the city? What what is that going to look like in in the years ahead? And two weeks ago, I began a series of sermons um, to help us think about that and to begin to share with you some of the decisions and discernments that our leadership has made I began the series by going right to the core right to the heart the most important thing for our church for the past seven years for the upcoming seven years the very most important thing is that we are a Christian church this is our identity we're a church of the Lord Jesus Christ that's core to our church And what is a church? What is a Christian church? It's a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of the good news of Jesus Christ. And what's the good news of Jesus Christ? It's this. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. That's the news that is astonishingly good. The news that is overwhelmingly good is this. In Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. We saw that in Mark's gospel two weeks ago. If, if you have a Bible with you, find Mark, the gospel of Mark chapter 1. Look with me at the very first thing that Jesus says in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1. If you need to use, if you have a Bible and you need to use a table of contents, please do that. There's no shame. The Bible is quite a big and complex book and Very difficult to find your way around, so. Here in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, this is the first thing that Jesus says in Mark's gospel. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel, the good news. What is it? Well, here it is. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now that I'm here, the kingdom is here. That's the gospel. That is the news that's good. The central fact of Jesus' life was that in him, in his life, the kingdom of God had arrived on earth. And as a Christian church, that has to be the central fact of our life. The church of the incarnation, we are a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of that news. The good news that in Jesus, God's kingdom is robbed. That's our core identity. And so for that sermon a couple of weeks ago, I spent the whole sermon walking through what that means. What does it mean to say that the king, if that's the news that's so good, well, what exactly is that? Why is that so good? And I spent a whole sermon doing that. If you weren't here and you're interested, you can go on our website and find it. In summary, what we saw Is that the true God, the world's creator, has loved this world so much that he loves you and he loves me. And he came in the person of Jesus Christ to die for you and to die for me and to rise again so that through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, he exhausted the power of evil. He broke it. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated evil. And he opened the door to healing this world. Every square inch of it. Including you. Including all the details of your life. What Jesus was doing in bringing the kingdom. What he was doing was he's making everything right right again. He's making this whole earth good and beautiful. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Every sorrow will be replaced with joy. That's the kingdom. God doing that, that is the kingdom. That's good. That's really, really good. All of the sorrows in your life being replaced with joy, all of the sadnesses in your life coming untrue, all of the vestiges of your mess-ups and other people's mess-ups being healed completely, that is quite simply what the Bible calls gospel, news that's good, good news. And all of that is done through Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that in Jesus, God's new day has dawned at last. Now, that's where we focused two weeks ago. But like I said at the end of that sermon, That is only half the fish. That's only half of what Jesus says. Jesus announces the good news, but he immediately says, no, you have to respond to it. And that the announcement of the news that's good is always accompanied by an invitation to receive it, to respond to it. In other words, the core of Jesus' identity wasn't merely that in him the kingdom has come. It was also that we must respond to the new reality. Jesus went around not just saying God's kingdom is here. He also went around inviting people into God's kingdom. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then look what he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. Word gospel uh, literally, it's good news, news. Repent and believe in that news. It's super good. Now, to be a Christian church is to be a group of people who not only are astonished at the good news, we have responded to it. We've accepted Jesus' invitation. We have repented, and we believe it. To be a Christian church is to be a group of people that is utterly convinced That the work of God in this world begins and ends with Jesus. And our job is to believe that. And to repent. God invites you and I into this kingdom. So this morning, let's look at the second half. Two weeks ago, what is the kingdom? Said just a little bit about it this morning in summary. But now what I really want us to do is focus on what does it mean for you and I to respond to the kingdom? What does it mean for you and I to accept Jesus' invitation to come into this beautiful world that is good and true and filled with joy? So this morning, the issue is that we're a Christian church. And a Christian church is not only astonished at the good news... It is responding to the good news. And for that, we're going to look at Nicodemus. This passage that Drew read to us. John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, please turn there. In John chapter 3, Jesus takes this one statement he makes at the beginning of Mark. And he has a, a long conversation with a man who's trying to figure out what it means. So we're going to... Take Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and what I want us to do is I want us to see that in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus helps us realize that responding to the good news involves these three realities number one, each of us is personally responsible to respond to the good news, number two, Responding to the good news is a process, not a singular cataclysmic event. It's a process. And number three, responding to the good news is a thick process. All right. It's all there in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. First of all, we are all... Personally responsible to respond to the good news. I want to draw your attention to the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Look at the very end of it, look what he says to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is verse 14, John 3 14, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then verse 16, this most famous verse in all of the Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish... But have everlasting life. So he starts in John chapter 3 by saying you must be born again, but he ends by saying you have to do something. So it starts with a thing that happens to us, right? None of us birthed ourselves. Birth is a thing that happens to you, right? You have to be born from above, he says. God has to do something to you if you're going to come into the kingdom. But he ends the conversation by saying you can't just be passive. It's not the kind of like, the, The new birth analogy can only go so far because you also have to do something and he summarizes what you and I have to do with what one word? Believe. We have to believe. We have to respond to God by believing. Those of us who were raised in the church, there's a danger here. You know, so my grandfather's a Baptist pastor, my father, my brother, my brother-in-law, my uncle, right? I, um, my parents were, are devout Christians. Their parents were devout Christians. Um, my, I have grandparents who were devout Christians. I've never known a day in my life that I didn't, I wasn't in the arms of God, loved by God and cared for by God and nurtured by God. Those of you who are raised in the church, you must be very, very careful here. You still have to respond. You have to. You have to believe. You've got a serious and heavy responsibility if you are raised in the church. If you have been baptized as an infant or if you were Baptist about seven or eight years old or maybe Mennonite around, I don't know, what is it, like 12 or something or... If you've been baptized, if you've grown up in the church, you still have a heavy responsibility to to make real in your life the truth of what happened to you at your baptism. Some people who grow up in the church, they assume that they've converted because of their background, that they're just automatically converted because of their presence in the church, because they serve in the church, because their parents are Christians. But remember... The utterly central fact of the Christian life is a living relationship with God through Christ. And this comes through the work of the Spirit in your heart. And you must embrace that for yourself. Teenagers. You must respond to God's work in your life. Teenagers. In your teenage years, it's crucial That you begin to transition, that your central identity begins to shift from your family to the church. That your deepest loyalty begins to shift from your family to the King Jesus. It is critical that you begin to know that fundamentally, more than anything else, more than being a member of your family, you are a member of God's family, you are God's child, that has to begin to move deep into the very center of your life. You have to feel in your bones that more than you're a wick line, or more than you're a Veerman, you are a child of the King. You have to begin to shift from your primary confidence and trust being in your parents to it being in Jesus. This is critical. And there are a lot of people that are raised in the church and they don't make that shift. And that's a problem because you're responsible to make that shift. You are responsible to begin to trust most profoundly Not in your parents, but in God. This is what it means to begin to own your baptism if you've been baptized. Or if you've not been baptized, but you were raised in the church, this is what it means to embrace the faith you were raised in. Your loyalty and your obedience are now due to the King, Jesus himself. And it's not just teenagers. It's every single one of us. This is a point that Jesus is pressing onto Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus comes to Jesus just like I was. He grew up in the faith. He grew up as a Jew. And the first thing he says to Jesus is, holy cow, you are special. I know you are. There is something about you that's... And then Jesus just cuts him off and says, Nicodemus... You have to be born again. You see, because that was the thing Nicodemus didn't think. Nicodemus thought that growing up in the faith was enough. He thought that his badge of getting in was the fact that he had been circumcised. He he had not come to the place to realize that he had to be born into God's kingdom. That he was responsible for this. What about you? Are there some of you in this room that you've been so passive with the Christian faith that you haven't yet felt the deep weight of responsibility that you must embrace it all the way down into the center of your intellect and in the center of your behavior into the center of your life? Second thing that we learn about our response to the gospel is that responding to the gospel, believing in this kind of way, is not quick. It's a process. This is so important because if you grew up like me, I I grew up with a heritage that insisted There's this one moment in time, and if you couldn't point to it and remember it and know it and talk about it in a certain kind of way, then you were confused as if you were a Christian or not. And you know what? That didn't work for me. And most people it's not the case for. In fact, it's not the case for Nicodemus. Let me show you what I mean. So here Jesus is involved in this conversation with him. You got to be born again, Nicodemus. You got to be you got to believe this stuff. And Nicodemus is saying, "Wait, this stuff is hard to believe." And don't you want to say the same thing about Christianity? Wait, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What do you mean God became human and he died for sins and he rose from the dead and he brought the kingdom? That is complex. That is super hard to figure out and to really understand. And you know what Jesus wants to do with you is the same thing he did with Nicodemus. Take time to help you understand it, to help you learn it, to help you. That's what being raised in the church does. You begin to hear this stuff and learn this stuff over a period of time. But Nicodemus doesn't leave that moment like, okay, everything's taken care of. No, look in chapter 7, verse 50. John chapter 7, verse 50 here, he shows up again. Nicodemus he was one of the lead the religious leaders one of the jewish leaders and in john chapter 7 verse 50 they they're all arguing about if they're if jesus is good or not if he really speaks for god or not And Nicodemus stands up in this kind of meeting of all these leaders. And he says in verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving a hearing and learning what he does? Here is Nicodemus saying, man, I got to learn what he's about. This is, here he is. He's in process. He has not converted. He's not been born again. He's still engaged, though. And then jump to chapter 19. Here's old Nicky again, showing up. John chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. There he is at the, at the death of Jesus. Now, part of what we're seeing here, and I could show you this with lots of other people, but our text this morning is the story of Nicodemus, um, is that for Nicodemus, this was a protracted process. There was a study dern, done in... Dern? I think that was some tense of the word done. Uh, A British study was done in the late 1980s and the early 90s of conversion experiences. People who converted to Christianity. The study said that the average conversion was a protracted process over four to five years. It wasn't this thing that just... You tell somebody the story of Jesus and they just woke up to Let me explain what I'm trying to talk about by using the notion of waking up. Waking up is one of the ways that the Christians, the very first Christians, talked about this thing. Uh, In 1 Peter, it talks about waking up. In Ephesians, this comes up in Revelation. I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's not a preacher story. It's about um, a friend... (laughs) It's about a friend that Janelle and I have and I've told some of you this story before. Her name is Amanda and she has the most incredible waking up routine in the mornings. You're going to think this is a joke, a caricature. Um, Husbands, I'm sorry that I'm about to reveal this but you just have to sort it out later at home. Here's how Amanda wakes up. She starts to stir. Her husband brings her a cup of coffee in bed. (laughs) After about 30 minutes... She then has finished her coffee. She takes a quick nap, 15 to 20 minutes. Then she showers and dresses while her husband is preparing her breakfast and packing her lunch. I am not lying. Um, The word princess just barely scratches the surface here. I am not lying. It's a a two-and-a-half-hour process. Now, she is a narcoleptic. So maybe that has something to do with (laughs) napping after coffee. I don't know. Now, I think personally her husband's a bad example. No one should follow this. (laughs) Now, for some of you, waking up is like this. Some of you wake up very slowly. You're half asleep. You're half awake. Last night, one of the houses on our street caught on fire. Three o'clock in the morning... Um, Janelle and I in this kind of haze are like what's all those blinking lights in our window and you know for just a moment we're trying to figure this out have you ever been in one of these moments and then we notice there's like 22 fire trucks outside of our house and not that many but there's a lot waking up can be the slow gradual thing where eventually without any shock or resentment you welcome the day I'm sure some of you are the opposite. Off goes the alarm. You jump up in fright. You're dragged out of a deep sleep to face the cold, cruel light of a new day. (laughs) Those moments when waking up is this rude and shocking experience. Waking up is the best analogy I know for becoming a Christian. For entering the kingdom. For some Christians. They have the classic alarm clock story. It seems that maybe Paul had this. He was cruising along in his life. And then he had this experience. That his whole life bent around. And, but even for Paul. It was protracted over days and days and days. And even weeks and weeks. And you could even say years. But he did have this kind of moment. That was like an alarm clock going off. And shuddering him, him into being awake. You can read about Paul's alarm clock conversion in Acts chapter 9, if you want to. But for most people, that is absolutely not the case. Most people are more like the apostle Peter. One day he believes in Jesus. Another day he's arguing with Jesus. One day Jesus says, man, you got it. And The next day Jesus says, you're the child of Satan. Get behind me. And he's in this kind of Weird state is if you read Peter through the Gospels, he's kind of one foot in, one foot back, beginning to understand, getting confused. At times, if this is you, there are moments in, in this journey where you feel like you're outside of Christianity looking in on it. And then there are these other moments where you feel like you're inside of it trying to figure it out. Becoming a Christian is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. And that brings us to the third issue. Responding to the good news is not just a process. It's a thick process. So when we're talking, when, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking to him about being born again, just think about birth. In some ways, you can say, oh, by the way, do y'all know that the Hewavidas are going to give birth in April, the Lord willing? Did y'all know that? <laughs> If I read my text right this morning, they're going to try to beat the wolves because Indy beats Stephen in everything. I think he said, no, 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 no. No, I'm joking. I think it said we're going to try to tie with the wolves. But think about how we can say, you know, uh, Daniel Coleman was born on this date. And we can sum it up as a singular event. But is birth a singular event? No, there is a massive amount of issues going on with the woman's body, with the baby's body, with all the lights and sounds in the room. And all of that stuff. Same way with meals, right? You can say I ate dinner last night with the cooks, but really dinner was a whole series of events, right? It was eating some stuff and drinking some stuff and being welcomed in their home and passing some stuff and wishing that Aaron would pass more potatoes, but he doesn't, he just finishes them. <laughs> and then, and so, so we oftentimes refer to a singular thing, but we really are using that to sum up a whole complicated series of actions, When Jesus says you have to be born again, he's summing up a whole complex, thick set of actions. Another way Jesus sums it up is the word belief. Belief in the Bible is a thick word. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it means what it sounds like. Just believe the story. Believe the news is good. Actually believe it. Actually believe that God has defeated all of the evil in this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To become a Christian, you have to actually believe that. You have to believe that God has launched his kingdom through Jesus. You have to believe the good news. You have to actually think that's true. That is the right account of reality. People hear this message and they find that, you know what, it makes sense to me. That's not all there is to belief. In fact, this is where our English word belief is quite inadequate and even misleading. When the early Christians talked about belief, they not only included believing that God had done this stuff, but believing in the God that did this stuff. This is not... In other words, you've got to believe doesn't mean you merely believe that God existed and Jesus is God. And Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. But it's also to give Jesus grateful, loving trust. Right? When I say to my wife, I believe in you. Right? I'm trying to jog right now. Jog seven days when Janelle says, you can do this, Aubrey. Um, I believe in you, right? This is grateful, loving trust. It's not just believing that. It's also believing in. And part of this has to include trusting God's offer of forgiveness. Trusting that when Jesus died on the cross, it really was for your sins. And that that is the beginning and end of God's solution to your sins. Trusting that and letting God forgive you. How? By you earning forgiveness? No. By you trusting him, and then he wipes your slate clean. By gratefully accepting the incredible gift of a slate wiped clean. But the fact that we can't ever earn God's favor by our own efforts shouldn't blind us to the fact that believing is also about obedience. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that we must have believing obedience. So, it's, it, it is true that you can't obey your way into God's favor, but that doesn't mean obedience is not a part of saving faith. The word the early Christians used for faith, in fact, can also be translated loyalty and allegiance. The idea of a soldier in a medieval army giving absolute loyalty, bending the knee, giving fealty to his captain. And so the thick process of converting to Christianity involves believing in all of this ways. Believing the news of the gospel. It involves love. It involves obedience. It involves trust and loyalty. And it definitely involves repentance. When we see ourselves in the light of Jesus' type of kingdom... When we say, okay, God has brought his kingdom, and his kingdom is good and true and beautiful and life and honest and joyful and peaceful and all of these things, and we really believe that's God's kingdom, we notice all of the ways we've lived different than that. The ways we're dishonest. The ways we're more loyal to ourself than to King Jesus. The ways we're selfish. And, and, what, and what repentance is, repentance is you looking at your life, taking stock of it and saying, you know what? It doesn't measure up to God's kingdom. God's kingdom is love and truth and joy and beauty and kindness and goodness and selflessness. And look at all the ways my life is not that. And then you bringing your life into line with the kingdom, that's repentance. It's it's a serious turning away from the patterns of your life that deface and distort genuine humanness. It's not just a matter of feeling sorry. It's absolutely that. Repentance absolutely involves, man, I'm a jerk. Man, I deceive people. Man, I, I live for myself. I feel terrible for that. But it's not just feeling bad. It's also recognizing that you need to bring your life into that kingdom way of living. There is no new birth without repentance. You cannot be saved without repenting. Faith in Christ is always demonstrated in repentance. And it's not just the beginning of it. What do we do every single Sunday? We kneel and we repent. See, all of the stuff I'm talking about that brings you into the kingdom, it's just the pattern for living in the kingdom. Trusting God, being allegiant to God, learning to put penance and repentance at the center of your life. God's kingdom is something quite different from the path so many of us have been on. You're going to have to come to grips with the fact that you've been living by a different code. You're going to have to give up the way you've been going. Now, for some of you, for some of us, what we have to come to grips with is pride and arrogance, control, and manipulation. For others, it's about turning away from shame and guilt. And for others, it's coming to see that you've been living a very, very selfish life. Life For others, it's about rejecting self-reliance. You were taught so much by your parents to work hard and to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <coughs> and that very good teaching got into the center of your soul. And at the center of you is self-reliance. You don't, you don't act as if you need God. For others of you, it's going to involve learning to live a life of deference to the will of God. To, to repent is to is to really come to grips that all of those non-kingdom ways of living are deadly. They're death. There is no conversion without repentance. To be born again, you must become acutely aware of your sin and deeply aware of the compassion of God on the cross for you. All right, now let's back up just a little bit. To be a Christian is to hear the story of the true God, the world's creator, and that he has loved the world so much, you and me included, that he has come himself in the person of his son and died and risen again to exhaust the power of evil and to create a new world in which everything will be healed. Saving faith. Here's that story. And believes it. And responds from the heart. With a surge. Of grateful love. That says yes. Jesus is Lord. He died for my sins. God raised him from the dead. This. Is the center. Of my life. To believe. To love. To obey. To repent. Those are the signs of new birth. God saves, we respond to his saving in those ways. So what about you? What is God doing in your life? Teenagers, children adults, college all of us, what where are you in re- response in relation to this? Where are you in a journey Of coming to belief, faith, repentance, trust, loyalty, love, obedience. Have you converted? Have you been dragged out of a deep sleep or are you in the process? Half sleep, sometimes you believe it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you've repented, sometimes you haven't. Maybe you're stuck somewhere. Maybe you believe this stuff, but you haven't yet, at the end of the day, it's not at the center of you. I think there's a lot of people in Christian churches like that, that they really do believe this stuff, but it's sort of like on the, on the edge of their life. It's, but has it gotten down so deep into your, your mind and your affections and your emotions and your behavior, and your morality, and every, has it gotten deep into the center of your life? And I'm not talking about becoming perfect. I'm talking about, this is the center of your life. If you're on the journey, in and of itself, that is evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. You must be born from above, Jesus said. Now, If you're on this journey, if if you are in that half-awake state, sort of maybe looking into Christianity, if that is you, then here, let me say to you, chill out, relax. I really and honestly have never met anybody that converted in a miraculous moment. Every person I deal, and this is what I deal with people about, it took years. Best I can tell for me, conversion was around 15 years. Now, I'm not saying, I don't, look, there is a thing of being born again, and then the whole rest of the Christian life is living this stuff out. But there is still this moment, this season, this process of becoming born again. And it's just like birth in that sense. A child is born, but that's not the end of the matter. Now they're just, they gotta keep doing all that stuff, they gotta keep living. Don't stress. Relax. Be patient. Parents, be patient with your children. This is the Spirit's work. No parent can choreograph his child's conversion. Children, be patient with your parents. Be patient with your friends. The Spirit of God is the evangelist. Our job is to give the context and the conversation and to help people understand and take the next steps. Trust in God. To save you. Chase down your doubts. Talk with a Christian friend. The manuscript of the sermon. It will be on our website. You can download it. Print it off and look at it. Contact me. Say hey Aubrey can we have coffee? Can I talk about this? Keep coming to church. Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus who like so many people today was impressed with Jesus. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you have to be born again.